0: God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James 4 verse 6. God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. One of the greatest hindrances to revival is pride amongst God's people. I heard a mission leader declare, I only want what God wants. The scripture declares that our righteousness is like filthy rags, and that we should, after we've done all, admit that we are but unprofitable servants. Yet this individual would have us believe that his motives and his intentions are completely pure and sanctified. He only wants what God wants. The word of God categorically states in Romans 3, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Yet when you ask people in the streets, would you consider yourself to be a good person, most respond, constantly, yes, I'm a very good person. They're not just good people, they're very good. And after Bill Clinton had many various scandals published and exposed, he met with a group of his favorite pastors and they asked him to describe himself to them and he said, my heart is good. So Bill Clinton's heart is good, even though Jesus said no one is good except one, which is God. And Jesus said, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries, fornications thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Shortly after my conversion at Pines Baptist Church, we had a theological graduate who arrived, and he had studied five years at Baptist Theological College, and he came down and he had this licentiate in theology, and I looked at him like, you know, here's a hero of the faith that's arrived. And he studied five years at Theological College. And so I invited him to speak to my youth group. And he looked at me with disdain and said, I didn't study five years at college to speak to a youth group. And then I asked him to speak to my Bible class. And I actually had a very big Sunday school class. Bible classes, all the teenage parents, Baptist churches, uh, held in a small hall. It, that's how many we had. And he just scorned that as well. Invited him to some outreaches. We were going to the Stain doing outreaches in old age homes on Sunday morning early. Didn't want to join that. Had street evangelism, going to the taxi ranks, uh, to Old Mutual Railway Station, the street and tracks. He didn't want to get involved in anything, not open air preaching, not literature distribution, not old age home ministry, nothing. He sat in a church waiting for a call for a full year. Sat there without taking a single meeting that I was aware of. And uh, he turned down some good calls. It was a call to Elgin Baptist Church. And like, that's too small a church for him. In the end he accepted um, King Williamstown Baptist, which was the second biggest Baptist church in the country at that stage. Very big, near East London, King Williamstown Baptist and he went there as a youth pastor. But he sat for a year, unwilling to engage in any evangelism during that time. He was too proud to lower himself. To minister. You think the Lord Jesus gave his best to one man, Nicodemus, or one woman at the well. But this man was not willing to speak to too small a group. Now I had similar shock when the chaplain arrived for a midweek chaplain service in the army. Only to turn around and say, I'm not going to waste my time on a few people. Now we had been taken out and covered bedfords dropped all over the place and given some maps and compasses and we had to find a way back to base and uh, we were the first bunch back in we were in town for the chapter service but most of the company was still scattered over the subcontinent so he literally turned around and and walked away with disgust because there was just a small group of us maybe 50 or 60 in the hall and I thought you know, what, what a disgrace well interestingly that was my first chance to preach in the army uh, because uh, the chap's, they, they didn't want to go back to running and drilling and training and you know, they are looking forward to their sleep during the trappiness period so they said, Hammond, Saltify, give us a sermon So, like, well I didn't need any more encouragement than that so I stood up and I realised, to keep the attention of these characters some of them were bedding down already, getting ready to sleep uh, Hall in Winela Hall, um, which was built like a cinema in uh, Six Eye and uh, so I started off by saying You've got words for us Christians, or we've got words for you. You are kafirs, you're unbelievers. You are, uh, you're pagans. Uh, you're lost. You're damned. You're going to burn hell forever. And I said you're like a drop of water on the way, being tossed up and down, like a piece of chaff in the wind. And I just insulted them continually. Nobody slept, but yeah, you know, they were shouting and they were angry, and <laughs> but just had to insult them. Well, Galatians six verse three says. If somebody thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And to think that there could be a chaplain who would turn down the opportunity to preach to do, something like between 60 and 80 of us, like too few people, wasted waste of his time. Now, interesting uh, that uh, after speaking at many churches, I've had individuals approach me and declare, when I was young, I made myself available to God. I'd go anywhere, do anything but nothing, God never guided me I was available, I was keen to go but God never gave me the green light quote unquote, that's the sort of thing I've heard so I found these testes completely unbelievable by their account, their motives were pure they were fully surrendered they were eager and willing, the only problem was God neglected to guide them, so God dropped the ball you know, here you had people, that he should have been delighted to have these people on his team, I mean these guys were the best of the best and but God failed to guide them it is simply incredible to suggest that their heart, their mind, their soul was perfect, surrendered, willing, available, but somehow God gu- failed to guide them. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright, in him, but the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Another phrase I frequently heard which indicates dangerous spiritual pride is I won't do anything unless God guides me. Do you need God's guidance to brush your teeth to? Type your bootlaces. do you need God's guidance to have a shower, do you need God's guidance to prepare a meal, to go shopping? I mean, these people, I won't do anything without God's guidance. They're not being consistent, but I think they're suggesting they need God to personally guide them before they do anything specifically spiritual. I mean, imagine a soldier in the army he says, now I'm not going to take any instructions from a corporal or a sergeant, I need the general himself to come and give me the instructions. See how well that works. I mean, I idea that God must give you personal attention. He's got delegated authority. If God's servants give you an instruction, isn't that good enough? And what about the teachings that you get in the Bible? And there's standing orders in the scripture. We don't need the general to come down and tell you every day you've got to polish your boots and you've got to. I mean, there's some things you just do no matter what. You make your bed, you don't need specific guidance for everything. And the idea that I won't do anything unless God guides me is spiritual pride. The scriptures in Psalm 25 says, The humble He guides in justice. The humble He teaches His way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. There's no doubt God gives the very best to those who leave the choice to Him. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God won't keep you. The question is, am I humble? Am I teachable? The word of the Lord is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God guides us first and foremost through His word. The best way to know the will of God is to study the Word of God, and we need to know the Word of God and the God of the Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God; it is as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is our priority to ensure that we not conform to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that we are able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. When we get our priorities straight, everything follows. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Everything tends to follow from that, first things first. The steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. He delights in his way. Although he fall, he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his right hand. Yes, we stumble. We might fall, but we get up again. And we don't give up, we don't turn back, we don't uh, give up the fight. To fall... And to stumble and then to get up again is still a victory. But to fall and to wallow in, in self-pity and so on and just roll around in the muck, well, that's, that's failure. But to fall and get up is not a problem. The will of God is not a mystery for us to discover. He has made His will abundantly clear in the Bible. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And as we remind ourselves on Friday nights at Thanksgiving, God's will for us is that we are thankful, prayerful and joyful. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is more than location and vocation and who we're going to marry. It's our attitude that we are joyful, prayerful and thankful in all circumstances. God's will is that we do restitution, return the things we borrowed, restore the property to its rightful owner, repair or replace items we've damaged, make right with individuals we have wronged. However, the super-spiritual wants spiritual, super-specific guidance for every aspect of life. When you invite them to an evangelistic outreach, to say, I need to pray about it. Well, we've got the Great Commission. Do you need to pray about, should I obey the Great Commission of our Lord Jesus? When you invite them to a prayer meeting, they also want to pray about it. And generally, those people don't feel led to do what the Bible commands them to do, which is to pray to God and proclaim the Gospel to the unsaved. So we've had people, you know, will you join us for a life change time? I need to pray about it. Well, we're having a prayer rally. Would you like to ask for the prayer rally? No, they, they need to pray about that too. And then the amount of people, um, oh, I would have come to the life chain if, if I had some more warning. Well, let me give you a warning. Next year, at exactly the same time, we're going to have um, the 1st of February, every year we march upon, anniversary of legalization of abortion. In South Africa. So there's a year's warning. Is that enough? Do you think you're going to see that person next year? Not on your life. People will make an excuse for what they don't want to do. If a person really wants to do something, they will move heaven and earth to do it. They will do what they really want to do. If it's a rugby match I don't want to miss, they will cancel whatever to make sure they make that. Whatever is important to them, they will make. And so the will of God is not a mystery to be discovered, it's a command to be obeyed. And the super spiritual, uh, Isaiah 5 verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. A person cannot be consistent with this position to refuse to do anything unless receiving direct guidance from God. What guidance do you receive to shop, cook, or eat food? Do we need specific guidance before we brush our teeth or wash our bodies in the morning? Do we need guidance as to whether to go to work, whether to fulfill our obligations every day? No, it's not necessary to receive specific guidance to do daily duties. In the army, you had standing orders which applied no matter what. Then you had partial orders which were specifics to this week. And so, biblical commands and personal responsibilities are expected to be done on a daily basis. We're meant to use our common sense and be diligent and dependable in all our duties. Proverbs 28:25 says, He who is of a proud heart stirs up tr- strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Now, spiritual pride's also seen those people who say, I only read the Bible. I've been walking West Street, Durban, handing out gospel tracts, and one auntie said to me, No, I only read the Bible. So, you know, I turned around, started following this lady, and... You only read the Bible, yes. You never read the newspaper? No, of course I read the newspaper. You don't read magazines? No, of course I read the magazines. So what do you mean you only read the Bible? Well, when it comes to spiritual things, I don't read tracts, I only read the Bible. Um, so how much do you read the Bible? Have you read the whole Bible? Have you read every book in the Bible? No, of course not. Uh, and it carries on. But honestly, this, this woman, I, I carried on until so I think she's really fed up with me. Um, <coughs> if looks could have killed, I would have been dead. But anyway... Um, the arrogance of these people, I only read the Bible. I've heard this over and over. You know, again, it's like I only listen to the general. If, uh, if the general delegates something through the colonel or the major, I'm not going to listen because I only listen to the general. That's all. Um, you know, try that NAMI, see how far you get. To refuse to read good Christian books and the materials in Bible study 8 is to stifle your spiritual growth. It's to starve yourself. Have you heard the counsel of God? Do not limit wisdom to yourself. Job 15.8 it's extreme pride to assume that I can learn to understand more of the Bible than the church fathers, the reformers and faithful students of God's word have gone before us. I will never be able to know Greek and Hebrew to the extent of some people uh, that I will get a better understanding of the scripture than what a Charles virgin or others have been able to preach about. So the idea that I would deprive myself of the study aids that God has provided through centuries of the church, faithful believers, and we've got treasuries on our shelves, Andrew Murray's and the Martin Luther's of this world who provide us great resources, why should I say I've got to learn everything directly from God I'm not willing to let God teach me through any of his servants through all of life for the expenditure of a few hours I can benefit from lifetimes of study of some of the greatest Bible teachers in church history, why would you deprive yourself of biblical insights of faithful servants like Augustine and Martin Luther and William Tyndall and Heinrich Bullingen? John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Andrew Murray, and so many others. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plying of the wicked are sin. Proverbs 21 4. The Lord Jesus warns us of thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. Here in Mark seven, verse twenty-two, pride is in the middle of a list of heinous sins. The middle letter of pride is I middle age of liars I, the middle age of sinners I I is the real heart of the problem selfishness, me, myself and I that's a new trinity, trench of evil me, myself and I there's so many examples in scripture of God resisting the proud the pharaoh of Egypt was proud who is the lord that I should obey his voice I do not know the lord, nor will I let Israel go that's in Exodus 5 but the arrogance of pharaoh spelled disaster for the Egyptian empire the pride of pharaoh led to complete economic and political, social, military catastrophe. After God had judged Egypt with the ten plagues, the superpower of the world was crippled and it never fully recovered. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to God. Proverbs 15 verse, Proverbs 16 verse 5. When King Nebuchadnezzar boasted, Is not this great Babylon that I have built up for a royal dwelling, by my mighty power, for the honour of my majesty? God rebuked Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He was driven out of his palace, and he lived amongst animals in the field until he acknowledged and honoured the greatness of Almighty God. A man's pride will bring him low. Pride comes before fall. King Belshazzar offended God by his blasphemous abuse of consecrated items from the temple in Jerusalem, which he used for a drunken feast. The hand of God wrote judgments of God on a wall, many, many teckled parcel, number number weight divisions. And Daniel explained, You have lifted up yourself against the God of heaven. The God who holds your breath in his hands, who owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And so God has numbered your kingdom and he has finished it. You have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. Your kingdom has been divided. It has been given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, King Belshazzar of the Chaldeans was slain. His kingdom was conquered by the Medes and by the Persians. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. When King Herod arrayed himself in royal apparel and sat in his throne. The people kept shouting the voice of God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and died. Now maybe you've read Acts 19 and thought this is the wrong way around. Surely it means he died and was eaten by worms. But in Sudan we discovered this guinea worm and the people uh, would even show us. You could see under their skin the guinea worm crawling around and um, inside the body, sometimes on their chest, and there's the guinea worm working around through the neck and so on. And so people can be eaten by worms and die. The eating of worms comes first, the dying comes next. And uh, so when the Bible says Herod was eaten by worms and died, the people in Shalane point out to me, that's what happens, we see a guinea worm. You can have a worm inside your body, eating you up from the inside. And why was he punished in such a way? He did not give glory to God. He took the glory for himself. James 3 says, Even so, a tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. See how great a forest is burned up by a little fire. James 3 verse 5. Obadiah 1 verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, and pride does deceive one. In the book of Esther, we read about Haman uh, who brought catastrophic destruction upon himself and upon his household because of his pride. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, he was filled with wrath. Because of Haman's extreme pride, his plot unraveled, he ended up hanged on the very same gallows that he built for Mordecai. Do not boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring forth, we read in Proverbs 27, verse 1. Which is why I saw early on, as a new Christian, uh, many church programs had DV there, which basically Mm -hmm. is God willing. And... uh, that comes from this verse. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You can say, you know, we're going to have a Bible study tomorrow night. Well, God willing, we don't know for sure. We've always got to have the attitude of, I may be planning our Great Commission course for January, but I mean, things are in God's hands. He has the right to overrule anything. So we read in the scriptures of Naaman from Syria, having his pride offended when the prophet didn't come out and speak to him personally to heal him of his leprosy, but told him, through a servant, to go and wash himself in the river. And he thought, do we not have good enough rivers in Syria? And he was proud and he was offended. But one of his servants said, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, would you not do it? Why not do something that's easy? And so he went ahead and he was healed. But pride can lead to national catastrophe. When King Uzziah was strong in his heart and he was lifted up to his own destruction, he transgressed the Lord his God by entering the temple of his God to burn incense in the altar of incense. 2 Chronicles 26 speaks of how King Uzziah brought not only disaster to himself but to the whole nation because of his pride. Of King Hezekiah, the scriptures, his heart was lifted up and therefore wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. That's 2 Chronicles 32. Personal pride in national leaders can lead to national catastrophe, as with Pharaoh. Our Lord Jesus warned of the danger of pride when he taught on the Pharisee who dared to come into God's house and pray to himself. God, I thank you, I'm not like other men. I'm not like that tax goat over there. I fast twice a week. I give one sentiment to come to Paul. And Jesus says he prayed to himself. God wasn't even listening to his prayers. He was so self-congratulatory, patting himself on the back. And He didn't come to express any humility or dependence on God. He came to regale to himself why he is so impressed with himself and why he is so much better than everyone else. To have the audacity to stand in God's temple and to pretend to pray while he's actually just boasting. And that's the kind of Pharisee the Lord condemns. The Lord Jesus condemned the church in Laodicea. Because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I've got need of nothing. But you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Revelation 3.17 1 Corinthians 4 speaks, now some are puffed up. You can think, you see some fish and so they can puff themselves up. And this kind of... Um, it's mostly hot air. They've they ballooned themselves up and they think they're so much greater than art, oh, like some balloon that you've inflated with helium. It looks more impressive than it actually is and just takes a pinprick to pop the whole thing down to size. 2 Chronicles 10 we read of a national catastrophe of the pride of King Rehoboam. The people of Israel petitioned the king, Your father Solomon made our yoke heavy. Therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and lift this heavy yoke that he put on us and we will serve you. So after the death of King Solomon, the third king of united Israel, uh, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne and the wise old men advise him to lessen the taxation burden and, and the pressures, the strict laws. And the elders who stood before his father Solomon counseled, if you're kind to these people and release them and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice of the elders and he consulted the young men who had grown up a you know, companion of fools, um, is not wise. Then the king answered them roughly. King Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders. He spoke them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. I will add to it. My father chastened you with whips. I will chasten you with scourges and scorpions. Now because of this arrogant reply, disdaining the wise counsel of the elders, the ten northern tribes of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam, divided the people of Israel forever. Rehoboam had to flee in haste. The heart of him who is understanding seeks knowledge, we read. And of course, pride is the very opposite of of seeking knowledge. A fool despises his father's instruction. But he who receives correction is prudent. Proverbs 15, verse 5. Proverbs 28, verse 26 should be memorized um, and written over every Hollywood Disney film. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. How many Hollywood Disney films have you heard? Trust in your heart. Yeah, the heart, like and the Bible says he who trusts in his heart is a fool Proverbs 28:26. he who trusts in his own heart is a fool see to it that you walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise we are told in Ephesians 5:15. C.S. Lewis writes about pride in mere Christianity pride is the one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else and of which scarcely any people except Christians ever imagine they themselves are guilty of there's no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of it ourselves. Proverbs 26 says, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. To be wise in his own eyes. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's, you could write that of a most opposites up at UCT. These professors who profess themselves to be wise. Pride is the only disease known to man which makes everyone sick except the person who has it. Pride is the ground in which all sins grow. None are so empty as those who are full of themselves. An egotist is always me deep in conversation. Pride is the very image of the devil. It's a national religion of hell. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but it's of the world. 1 John 2.16 Pride is the idolatrous worship of ourselves. Pride is the religion of hell. The first step towards hell is pride. The first step towards heaven is humility. God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Pride thrust Lucifer out of heaven. Pride thrust Adam out of paradise. Nebuchadnezzar out of his his palace and man's society. Saul was thrust out of his kingdom. And Haman out of his royal court. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, we read in James 4.16. St. Augustine wrote, Men ought to be ashamed of being proud, seeing that God was humbled for our sake. Those who think too much of themselves don't think, said Amy Carmichael. God sends no one away who's empty except those who are full of themselves, said D.L. Moody. Oswald Saunders recommended three tests to evaluate how proud we are and how much pride we have to repent of. The test of precedence. How do you react when another person is selected for the assignment you expected or for the office you coveted? How do you react when another person is promoted and you are overlooked? When someone else outchines you in gifts and accomplishments? Number two, the test of sincerity. In your moments of honest self-criticism, you will admit many things about your own failings and weaknesses. But how do you feel when other people say exactly the same things about you that in the sincerity of your heart you've recognized are true? Many times we will, Lord God, I'm a wicked, evil, worthless sinner. But if someone said that to you, you'd um, fight them. So, the test of sincerity. Thirdly, test of criticism. Does criticism arouse hostility and resentment in your heart? does criticism cause you to fly immediately in self-justification there's nothing that human pride resents so much as to be rebuked do not be wise in your own nice. eyes fear the Lord and depart from evil the folly of fools is deceit I heard um, a good response of some people is when they've been accused of being really sinful and, and bad I mean, like just take George Weber classically when people said you, know, you are you know better said well, now much worse than that and the uh, you know, when uh, William Carey was being belittled by some arrogant woman in India and said, Mr. Carey, I believe that you were a shoemaker. And he said, No, ma'am, I was only a cobbler. A shoemaker makes shoes. A cobbler just repairs them. Mr. Carey, I believe you were a shoemaker. No, ma'am, just a cobbler. And, you know, how can you insult a person and you tell them they're bad and they tell you, well, actually, I'm worse than that. Mm-hmm. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. 1 Corinthians 3:19. Published in 1813, Jane Austen's novel *Pride and Prejudice* is recognized as one of the finest novels in all of history. In it, Elizabeth Bentley um, comes across as prejudiced, and fits William Darcy as proud. But the writer, the depth and subtlety of Jane Austen, doesn't have one-dimensional characters. Her characters are complex, compelling, and ambiguous. The pride and prejudice of the title applies both to Elizabeth Bennet and to Fitzwilliam Darcy. Darcy is proud of his rank and fortune and he's prejudiced against Elizabeth's family and her foolish mother. Elizabeth takes pride in her own independence and she's prejudiced against what she sees as Darcy's self-importance and snobbery. They're both proud. They're both prejudiced. The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. Humility comes before honour. Proverbs 15.33 as a young Christian, I remember being most impressed at the evangelist that I invited to our evangelistic crusade at Six Southern Infantry, Reverend Roger Volk. Now, Reverend Roger Volk was the main speaker, and I think at that time he was in his 60s, which at that stage seemed awfully old to me um, And uh, as a 19-year-old. But Roger Volk, after a day of evangelistic meetings, and I'd every day packed with meetings, and each night they were in a transport hangar at the military base, and there he was preaching uh, to at least a 1,000 soldiers, more like 2,000 soldiers in that first week. And uh, at the end of the first night, 99 people had come forward and surrendered their lives to Christ in front of the stage. We only had 34 trained counsellors, so each of us had to counsel these three people at that time. Well, it had been a long day, busy day, and each day we had an average of five evangelistic meetings, local schools, churches, and at the military base. But here was this man, three times our age, I looked up from a man I was counselling and I saw Roger walking through his hangar straightening out the chairs. Now you can imagine when the men left all the chairs just
1: no.
0: turned this way. And he's straightening the lines of chairs, thousands of chairs. And those of us who weren't busy at the coffee bar felt chastened immediately we threw ourselves into straightening of chairs so the guest evangelists could just get some rest. Now, as a young 26 year old missionary, I was invited to speak at the Quasavanta Mission. And Reverend Earl and his wife, Auntie Kay, gave up their bedroom to me. Now, I protested that I was used to rolling out my sleep bag on the floor and I'd be happy with just the carpet, but um, a simple floor would not be as bad as some of the places I stayed. You know, a mattress would be luxury. I don't need to take their bed in a master bedroom. But Uncle Earl Auntie Kay, they went and slipped them on the children's uh, bunk beds and uh, made available their bedroom for this young, single motorbike missionary of 26 years old, I mean, I was quite embarrassed, uh, but I was impressed at the humility of these senior missionary veterans, more than double my age, showing such humility, and Christ's mission practices the principle of, in honor preferring one another, and I think that's uh, a principle that really epitomizes the people here, in honor preferring one another. Everyone there seems to really think everyone else is more important than him. That's quite extraordinary you go to other places where people are convinced they're more important than everyone else. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In the words of Isaac Watts' hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. So we should take our pride to the cross. Because God was this department He gives grace for the humble. Lord God, we thank and praise you for what you have done for us for how you humbled yourself and took the form of a human being. And you suffered all the frustrations and indignities of human life in an oppressed province as a second class citizen of, under an evil empire. And you took a humble occupation. You worked hard. You showed work ethic. You suffered unjust accusations. You suffered hunger and thirst for our sake, and you suffered an unjust kangaroo court, whipping, scourging, spitting, mistreatments of every kind, and brutal crucifixion for our sakes. You humbled yourself for us. Lord God, forgive us that we so often think ourselves more worthy than we should. We do pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be more humble, that you may be able to bless us because we recognize that you resist the pride and you give grace to the humble. Lord we pray give us more grace guide us we pray have mercy upon us that we may bear the afflictions you put upon us with grace and with joy recognizing that the joy of the Lord is our strength have mercy upon us we pray Lord God give us the victory we thank you Lord God that through our God we will do valiantly as you will tread down our enemies in Jesus name, Amen Comments, questions, anything to add? Multiply? Divide?
1: There's times when you say, I'm waiting for God. Oh. Uh, but that, that's if you've got this choice or that choice, what do I do? Yeah. And, and you don't know, just plunge into something.
0: Well, gu- guidance, guidance is something that we need to take seriously, but. The trouble is some people are so super spiritual they use this as an excuse why they don't do anything. And that's mm-hmm. not right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think guidance is a blueprint. Guidance should not be used as an excuse for disobedience, laziness and just sitting on a fence. Yeah. And I think I've seen all too much of that. The amount of super spiritual characters who don't do that much but you know, they, they act so super spiritual and they're waiting on God and they're waiting on guidance. I just find a super suspicious when God never seems to guide them to attend the prayer meetings, the Bible studies the outreaches um, it's hard to believe they're so super spiritual they don't do what God commands them to do how can it be that super spiritual? I mean I'm sure every church has them
1: you know with God's guidance is you pray about it and you put it in his hands and then you continue to do what's in front of you and if God wants to show you it will open up you know, you can't miss you don't miss God's guidance, let's put it that way. Yeah. If God is guiding you to do something, you are like you praying about it, you in a the job, then you continue doing that job until it becomes utterly clear. You'll never miss God's guidance because you'll wake you up at night. You'll know that you're on the wrong track and you must do something. You just you don't you don't miss it, you know. You can't say to God one day I missed your guidance because but if you're praying about it, you stay at your post until you have an absolutely clear uh, vision of where you're going and you'll know it, you can't sleep it you, people will tell you it, about it there's no way to miss it yeah. and then if you're you know you're you can't sleep at night okay. because you know you should be
0: doing
1: that thing yeah, your I've heard
0: it's described that it's like riding a bicycle yeah. you can steer the bicycle while it's moving but you yeah. can't really steer it while it's stationary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. and this idea that you know, God's going to guide me but I'm, I'm sort of stationary on my bike I'm not going to get anywhere he can guide me as I'm moving he can steer me when I'm, I'm busy doing something. That's what yeah. someone
1: said. People think of guidance as a blueprint, but it's actually a game, a game plan. You have to be doing things to, mm. to that's, be able that's to get guidance. Yeah. 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 You don't have to wait for the whole thing to be rolled out for you and then you do yeah. it. I remember years ago, we were Christine, I was struggling financially. And so we prayed about it and then nothing comes, you know. So now you make an Ishmael plan, you know? You know what I mean? You go and you go and take a moment. You think, well, God hasn't shown us so that must be the right thing to do. And it wasn't. It was a terrible millstone around our necks. You know, we used to, we to cry out uh, cry to the Lord and say, deliver us from us. So, you know, and it took a while before God did, but we learned to listen. You can't just go, you know, God's guidance works on His own. It's got nothing to do with you. You've got to pray about it and trust and carry on to and remain at your post. And deliverance will come, or you will know what to do. Mm -hmm. And you won't miss it. There's never, you know, people come and tell you. It's crazy. You can't sleep at nights when you know what God's
0: doing. What I liked about being a Christian in the army is the pagans tell you what God's will is, you know. Yeah, it's true. I thought you were a Christian. What are you doing? doing You're washing on a Sunday. Oh, how can you do this and that? I thought you meant to be a Christian. So these pagans are sort of guiding us the whole way along. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're sort of cracking the whip over you if you step out of the line.
1: You're supposed to be a Christian. They're, they're yeah.
0: Why are you worrying? I thought you were a Christian. Don't you believe in God? You know. Yeah. <laughs> so whatever the issue is, the pagans will tell you how to be a better Christian than the average Christian will be. It's in, in Incredible, really. That's. It. But yeah, I found in the fire brigade as well. You know, all these pagans telling you what it means to be a Christian, how you should behave as a Christian. Some of they seem to know.
1: Yeah. Sometimes they're not speaking through them. Too. Yes. <laughs> the
0: <other way. laughs> I've gotten some uh, good guidance from God, even from the enemies of God.
1: Mm. Yeah. And we all have been given like talents and gifts. So we have to
0: be moving, we have to be it's, using... What we're it's doing hard to believe God would give us a gift time. without us using it. Here's another super spiritual I've heard over and over. As I started in Hospital Christian Fellowship, you start to hear people at churches, with, you know, I always said to God, God, I'll do absolutely anything, just don't send me to Africa. So where God send me, send me to Africa. <laughs> or, I wanted to do medicine more than anything else. And so that's what I had to put an the altar. And God has me doing something else, not medicine. I find it just so hard to believe that God would give you a gift and a burden and that he wouldn't want that fulfilled. So some people have this bizarre mentality, whatever is what I'm really gifted for and what I'm really passionate about, that's what God won't want me to do. That's a kind of twisted form of logic. You hear a lot of testimonies like that, but especially over in in America, I don't know if you've heard the song, Lord don't send me to Africa, I'll do this and I'll do that, everything else, but just don't send me to Africa. And there's this (coughs) song, and I've been in mission conferences where they actually sing that song. And it's a uh, Lord, don't send me to Africa, like anything else. And, uh, but it's it's a bizarre testimony. This idea that whatever you know, like God's got some perverse uh, joy in uh, taking away what you really enjoy and forcing you to do what you really fear or hate the most. And that's, and there might be a time where um, God knows better than us, and we're actually really going to enjoy what we thought we wouldn't. Yeah. But that's different. Yeah. This idea that you know you spent your whole life studying for medicine. And you've got a passion for medicine now. God won't want you to use all that medical training. That's hard to believe. Yeah. So, uh, but it's really funny the amount of people who've got this pathological fear of, that God will send you to Africa. Lord, I'll go anywhere for you, but just don't send me to Africa. Now I've met those people all over the world. Yeah. How do you mention Africa? They're asking us. Well, a lot better than I would mention California. You know these people. I was in California and saying, "How do you mention Africa?" And I said, you know, with all lions and so I said, "Well, the lions aren't the problem." I said. How do you imagine California living on the San Andreas Fault uh, of an earthquake zone close to a blasphemy factory which is tempting God every moment for judgment to fall from the sky with all his traffic jams? You can't go anywhere except through smog and traffic jams. How do you manage living in California? He thought, well, California is great. To me, this is like hell. I wouldn't want to live in California. Um, I'm very happy in Africa. Thank you. Um, So there's definitely a few bents out there, but the amount of people around the world who think the worst place in the world to go is Africa. And we've got more freedom, and even during the lockdown lunacy, we had more freedom here than places like Australia or Germany, because our government's not efficient. And that's a good thing. You don't want an efficient enemy.